All right, morning, everyone. Father, we come before you this morning. I think these verses are so important to our daily lives, to the health of our church. I don't think any of us could say that we haven't been offended different times in our Christian life or offended others. And so this is a sermon that has such incredible application. I hope would also challenge us to be offended less easily. It seems to be a sign of maturity to be able to overlook offenses, and it seems to be a sign of maturity to rebuke sin, and so help us to find the wisdom needed to rightly divide these verses and apply them to our lives. Give us sensitive hearts that will receive your word and receive any conviction from this preaching as though from you. I pray, Lord, that I would just be your vessel to address your people. I've labored over these notes. If there's anything that's not in them that you would have me share or preach, then I pray you'd bring that to mind, Lord. If there's anything perhaps that I shouldn't share, then I pray my eyes would overlook those parts of my notes. I do thank you for this time and for this opportunity to share such an important part of church life with this body. We love you, Lord. We love each other. We want, it, want things healthy and joyful here, and so we pray for your blessing on this message, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Many men. The title of this morning's sermon is, If He Repents, Forgive Him. If He Repents, Forgive Him. Sunday mornings, we're working our way through Luke's gospel verse by verse, and we find ourselves at Luke 17, verse 3. I want to give you an idea of where we've been last week, where we'll be this morning, and then where we'll be next week. So last week, we dealt with the beginning of the verse, in particular, the words, pay attention to yourselves. We talked about how before God has us address sin in other people's life, he first wants us to address the sin in our lives, or to pay attention to ourselves first. Uh, as I tell you every time we hear baby, what, what do I tell you every time we hear babies here? We love them, that's right. So we don't mind the sounds of them whatsoever. It's a blessing to have children here with us. This morning we're going to be dealing with most of the rest of the verse. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And I said most of the, you could listen to that and say, well, that sounds like the whole rest of the verse. Well, I said most of the rest of the verse because next week we're going to deal with the repeated phrase, if he repents. Notice that occurs in verses 3 and 4. It says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Then verse 4, if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So twice we're told to forgive our brother if he does what? Which begs what question? Huh? What if he doesn't repent? What does it mean if he doesn't repent? We will talk about that next Sunday. The sermon for next Sunday is titled, Is Repentance a Condition for Forgiveness, or Should We Forgive Unconditionally? This is a common question that I've received and that I've wrestled with over the years. I'm thankful to have a week to really throw myself into finding that answer. So next week we'll talk about the uh, part that a person's repentance plays in us forgiving them. But this morning, for now, notice that even though the verse only says, if your brother sins, we know from the context and from the parallel account in Matthew 18 that it means, if your brother sins against you. That's how it reads in Matthew 18, and the context reveals that, and it brings us to lesson one, rebuking sin is a wisdom issue. Lesson one, rebuking sin is a wisdom issue. Can you guess just by hearing that lesson why I would say rebuking sin is a wisdom issue? 
you can suspect that you don't go around rebuking every single sin you see or that's committed against you, right? I think we know that, and that's why it's a wisdom issue. It's not a black and white issue. And the other reason it's not a black and white issue, or the other reason it's a wisdom issue, is there are verses that encourage us to overlook sins against us. And there are verses encouraging us to rebuke sins against us. Listen to this, Proverbs 19, 11. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. The Amplified Bible says, it is his honor and glory to overlook a transgression or an offense without seeking revenge and harboring resentment. And so it's pretty clear that it is a credit to us or it is a sign of maturity to overlook an offense. And so the more mature you are, the greater offense you should be able to overlook. The less mature you are or the more immature you are, the more easily you're going to be what? Offended. And the less you're going to be able to overlook. Proverbs twelve sixteen: the vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. Let me read that again. The vexation or wrath or anger of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. Vexation means wrath, which is how it's translated in the New King James, or anger, which is how it's translated in the NASB. And it says that fools are quickly going to be filled with wrath or anger when they are offended or when someone does something to them. But the prudent or the wise are going to be able to ignore or overlook an insult. And this brings us to lesson two. Christians should be the most difficult people to offend. Christians should be the most difficult people to offend. I can look back on times in my life when I was offended and I'm ashamed at some of the things that offended me. I'm ashamed at some of the things I didn't overlook. I can also look back on times when people were not offended by things that I expected to offend them, or perhaps I put myself in their place and thought that I would have been offended if that happened to me. And when I saw that they were not offended, how did they look? Looked very mature. It was impressive to be able to overlook that or to not be offended. At the same time, I can look back on times when people were offended, and perhaps it made them seem petty or immature to me. When you think about the people in your life who are the most easily offended, are you thinking of mature people or immature people? Are you thinking of spiritually strong people or spiritually weak people? My suspicion is when you think of the people in your life who are the most easily offended, you are thinking of some of the most immature people you know. And maybe we should keep ourselves in mind throughout this discussion as well. Some of you might remember, I don't, I don't think I've mentioned them in a few years, but when we first came here, Dave and Nada came up in a few sermons. They, they visited us. I think they taught during Sunday school. They had been mentors to us when they were in California. or When we were in California, they're still there. We were able to see them when we went back for that marriage conference last year. Uh, we really looked up to them, and I noticed that Dave was never offended by anything. It, it seemed like no matter whatever happened, th- there was nothing that could cause him to be offended. And I asked him one time, Dave, why is it that you're never offended? I even, I even mentioned to him different things that, that were said or that had happened. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, it is impossible to offend a dead person. It is impossible to offend a dead person. Can you see why he said that? 
He meant that when we become believers, we die to self. We have died with Christ. The old man has died. We are to crucify that old man. That man is dead, and so we should not let it be stirred up or aroused or brought to life by offenses. We should keep it dead. And so I really believe there wasn't much that could offend Dave. And if that's not a good enough reason to avoid being offended, then I would offer you this. Some of the most miserable people that I've ever met are the most easily offended. Let me say that one more time. When you, some of the most easily offended people are typically the most miserable because they're going around constantly offended. They regularly feel like they're being mistreated when they're at the workplace. Their employer is not treating them well enough. Their, their co-workers are not treating them well enough. If they're at the school, the teacher's been mistreating them. The other students mistreat them. Sometimes in their family, the, these are the people that come in for counseling and they're bitter toward their spouse because their spouse has mistreated them or their parents or their siblings. These are the people in the church and they typically, to be honest with you, bounce around church to church, regularly being offended. They get offended at the next church and then they move on to, to the next church. And so they're always miserable. They never learn to overlook offenses and maybe they never hear sermons like this. You know, or maybe they hear a sermon like this and they get offended and then they leave that church, right? <laughs> so here are a few more verses making a similar point about the importance of overlooking offenses. Proverbs ten twelve, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers or forgives all offenses. That word covers is almost being used synonymously with love. If you think biblically about the word cover, it, it's atone, right? That's what atoning sacrifices did in the old testament they didn't forgive sin but they covered sin until christ could come and remove that sin so frequently when you see the word cover or when you were talking about forgiveness and it says that love is going to cover or forgive all offenses so if we love people that love is going to cover or it's going to forgive their offenses there's a new testament verse that makes this exact point to us First Peter 4.8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers or forgives a multitude of sins. One more time, First Peter 4.8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers or forgives a multitude of sins. And so if you love people, you're going to overlook their offenses. It's going to be covered. I've shared with you before that the world causes us to look at certain words very unbiblically probably the most common that i've mentioned so i won't spend a lot of time on it is the word love the world wants us to think that love is this feeling or emotion over which we have no control you fall in love with someone it's accidental this is why married people fall in love with people that aren't their spouse you know the the absurd idea a baby flies around with a bow and arrow and shoots people and then they're in love and this is why people talk about falling out of love, right? They, they might say, we're getting a divorce. We didn't intend it, but we just don't, we don't love each other anymore. We've fallen out of love. Well, one of the other words that the world has caused us to think of unbiblically is patience. I hope this morning you could leave here and have a biblical understanding of what patience is. But let's first begin with what patience is not. If you're considered a patient person in the world's eyes, you're a person who's really good at what? waiting you're just like super good at waiting there's that that red light when you t come into town when you get off the freeway that it seems incredibly long to me and you just sit there like this 
Or you're at Walmart and you've been in line for 45 minutes and you can see 37 open registers without cashiers. <laughs> and then you finally get up to the cashier and my brother-in-law Boyd says to you, I am so sorry that you've been waiting all this time. And then you say to Boyd, hey, Boyd, it's no big deal. It just gave me time to pray for people and recite verses I've memorized. <laughs> so that's what a patient person is. Someone that just loves waiting and is super good at waiting. <laughs> that is not at all what the Bible says or means when it uses the word patient. Biblically, patience would be more synonymous with endurance, enduring, perseverance, or persevering, or long-suffering, which is why many translations don't even use the word patience. They use the word perseverance, or persevering, endurance, or enduring, or long-suffering, which is how the Greek word is often translated. Being patient means you put up with a lot well. Let me say that one more time. Being a patient person means you put up with a lot very well, whether it's trials, whether it's insults, whether it's criticisms. You don't get upset. You don't become offended. The Greek word for patience, it's hupamane, hupamane. And part of the definition is bearing ill treatments bravely and calmly. The word for patience means bearing ill treatments or times you're mistreated bravely and calmly. Listen to the way this verse summarizes it for us. Ephesians 4.2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love. One more time. Ephesians 4.2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love. And so the verse says that patience is bearing with people in love or being long-suffering. What does it mean to bear with people? You, don't, you almost don't want to say it because it, it sounds harsh, but it's what the Bible has in mind. What does it mean to bear with people? It means to put up with them. It means to put up with them. You don't have to bear with difficult, you don't have to bear with easy people. You have to bear with difficult people. Or you, or you could, if we're honest, we're all difficult at times. So maybe it's better to say you have to bear with people when they're difficult because we're all difficult at times, right? You, have to, you don't have to bear with people when they're being easy and friendly and gentle and kind. We have to bear with people, and people have to bear with us when we are being unkind and, and difficult. And it says that with patience, bearing with one another in love, and so it's patience that causes us or allows us to bear with people or put up with them without becoming offended, doing so in love. Maybe you heard the title of this sermon. What's, what's the exact title? How did I word it? If He Repents, Forgive Him. And you kind of get excited. Because it says, if he repents, forgive him. And you're like, ha now I get to go rebuke all the people that have sinned against me. <laughs> and now, now you're like hearing the opposite of that. So you're saying, well, I thought we were going to be going and rebuking people. And now you're just telling us to be super patient with people and put up with. Basically the opposite of what I anticipated. There is a place for that, as we'll see. But I want you to notice this balance that it can be very mature to overlook and not rebuke. Now, regarding overlooking, I'm going to add this. If we think we have overlooked something, and give me your intention when I say this, we have to be certain we have. If you believe you have overlooked something, or you're trying to convince yourself or perhaps others that you have overlooked something, 
you better make sure you actually have because if you haven't you're giving place to what wrath bitterness so how do you know if you've really overlooked something or not if you believe you've overlooked something but you keep thinking about what the person has done you are still upset with the person you treat the person differently your relationship with the person is damaged things are awkward when you're with the person whenever you see them you're reminded of the offense then you clearly haven't been able to do what overlook what they've done and that's not necessarily a sign of immaturity because it it it's a sign of immaturity to say you've overlooked something when you haven't and it can be a sign of maturity to rebuke sin when someone is sinned against which person is more mature the person who pouts and acts like they're not upset when they are or the person who goes to the person and says when you did this it it really offended me it bothered me which one of those is more mature the immature person is the one who sits and pouts and mistreats the person acts differently toward them whenever they're around so in these instances saying that we have overlooked the offense is not a sign of maturity if we haven't really been able to overlook it because here's what I've seen a few times people don't want to go to the person and this has happened to me I've heard gossip or sometimes people have even come to me and maybe they genuinely wanted counsel and I could tell that they were offended towards someone and I said it really seems like you should probably go to that person it seems like you're offended and the person says I'm not offended and you can almost tell by the way they say I'm not offended that they're offended right <laughs> I'm not offended how could you say that now I'm offended toward you I don't want to see the person I can't stand them when they come in the room I leave the room but I'm not offended I mean look how happy I am you know and it's like completely obvious to everyone around them how offended they are and when you say I actually think it would be better to go to the person before you become bitter or more bitter they vehemently declare that they're not offended and that everything is fine but the fact is they're not fine and because the offended person will not acknowledge the offense and will not go to the person the relationship does not improve remains awkward and then even becomes a threat or detrimental to the church family and this is one of and you probably can see that I've been building toward bitterness and the problems that bitterness can cause and this brings us to lesson three rebuke sin to prevent bitterness rebuke sin to re- prevent bitterness when people are offended when they haven't been able to overlook something and they don't go to the person the issue or offense is not resolved bitterness sense sets in now listen to this verse I'm going to back up one verse before the premier verse about bitterness Hebrews 12 14 strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord so the context is actually peace or unity strive for peace with everyone and then after we're told to strive to be at peace with everyone which obviously involves overlooking offenses right after that the author of Hebrews tells us what I believe is probably the greatest threat to being at peace with people which is bitterness Hebrews 12 15 the next verse he says see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God so you forfeit the grace of God 
when you're bitter. Bitterness causes you to forfeit the grace of God. You're missing out on many of God's graces when you're bitter. What are some of God's graces you forfeit or miss out on when you're bitter? Good relationships, joy, peace. I mean, imagine all of the graces of God that you forfeit being bitter. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. So bitterness is described as having what? A root, which makes perfect sense because roots grow and they spread over time like bitterness grows and spreads over time. Roots can wrap around things and damage them. They can wrap around pipes. They can wrap around the sidewalk or the foundation, just like bitterness can wrap around people's hearts and damage them. Roots become stronger over time. They become harder to remove, just like bitterness becomes stronger over time. It becomes harder to remove. Roots are below the surface, and they're hard to see, just like bitterness is often below the surface and hard to see. Now, when I say that bitterness is below the surface and hard to see, I don't mean to others. I mean to the bitter person. The others can see the bitterness. I think Dave, I didn't ask Dave ahead of time, but he has shared that he's never met a bitter person. Why did he say that? Because people, he actually has met a bitter person. I struggle with bitterness. I, I've, I have struggled with bitterness. And so he's met at least one person who, who's been bitter at times. But I actually didn't even recognize that until it was pointed out to me. And so the point is, we don't see bitterness. We need people who can share that with us, and we need to crucify our flesh and resist the temptation to get angry and say, I'm not bitter, and then become bitter toward the person who just confronted us about our bitterness. And so roots go down below the surface, hard to see, just like bitterness. You suspect someone is bitter. You seem upset with this person. Do you think you might be bitter? How could you say that? Just because I made a joke about wanting that person to die, (laughs) don't you think you're being a little insensitive? Just because I was slandering them behind their back those one or two or 30 times, I was joking. Can't you take a joke? I mean, I don't really hate them, even when I told you a bunch of times how much I hated them. Yeah, I try to avoid them as much as possible, and I've been trying to turn people against them by gossiping about them, but I'm not really bitter. Finally, it says, the root of bitterness causes trouble and defiles many, and this is very important. Notice it doesn't say that a root of bitterness hurts many. There are sins that hurt many. If someone's murdered, there are going to be many people who are hurt by that murder. But that's not what this says, and it is not the same thing. What does it say that bitterness does to many people? It doesn't say hurts. What does it do? It defiles. Bitterness defiles many people. That Greek word means pollutes. It only occurs four times in Scripture. It's me, I know. Me, I know. And it means pollute. And after being in ministry for 16 years, I cannot tell you how many people I have seen defiled by bitterness, just as this verse describes. And here's how it happens. Bitter people disobey Luke 17.3 or Matthew 18. They don't go to the person that they're bitter toward. They go to others. They gossip. They slander. Social media has made this exponentially worse. 
Social media gives people a platform to gossip and slander like they never had before, and then to subtly say things like, well, I'm not really talking about that person with, their po- with this post just because I didn't put the person's name there. Anyone that uses social media to criticize others is gossiping and slandering and is completely disobeying what God's Word says, because God's Word says in Matthew 18 and Luke 17 to go to the person. Social media allows you to go to everyone else and slander and gossip to all the people who shouldn't be part of that circle of knowledge. So bitter people don't go to the people they're bitter toward. They gossip about these people to others, and then those people who hear the gossip and slander are defiled. And I'll say it like this. Frequently, the people who listen to the gossip and slander are defiled. And I just want you to notice the way that I worded that because I chose my words precisely. I didn't say the people who hear the gossip and slander because we can't always control what we hear. I said the people who listen to the gossip and slander because we do choose what we listen to. And gossip and slander always involves two parties. It involves the person who chooses to gossip and slander or revile, and it chooses, and, or excuse me, gossip and slander always involves two parties, the person who chooses to gossip and slander and the person who chooses to what? Listen, there cannot be gossip, slander, reviling without two individuals unless someone's talking to themselves, right? Which wouldn't be gossip or slander or reviling. So if someone comes to you and they say, you know, I I heard these people talking about you. I heard these people talk, and they're trying to criticize you, and they say, I heard these people talking bad about you. Do you understand that the person who says that is saying a lot about themselves because they listened? That person unknowingly is acknowledging their disobedience to Scripture because obedience to Scripture would have involved them saying, I'm not the person to hear this. You should not be talking to me right now. I can tell that you're upset. If, if you really want to be biblical, say it seems like you might be bitter or offended. That I'm not the one who should be receiving this knowledge. You should go to that person. If you want to be biblical and you see stuff on social media that, that shouldn't be there, send the person a message and say, you shouldn't be posting this on social media. If you're a f- and it's not even a defense of the other person's actions. If someone tries to talk to you about s- or slander someone else, you don't even have to defend the person who's being slandered when you say you need to go to that person. That's not a defense of the person who's being slandered. It's just encouraging this person to handle things biblically. And so when you listen to slander or gossip you're becoming party to sin. You are being complicit in that sin that's being committed. And don't think that just because, well, I'm not the person who's saying it, I'm not doing something wrong. And can you imagine how much greater peace, joy, and unity there would be in churches, relationships, families, if this straight Bible teaching was observed? I didn't come up with this. It's, it's plain. It says, go to the person. There is a circle of involvement that is to be observed. Matthew 18 and 17, command going to the the person versus going to others, and both both passages keep that circle of knowledge small until it must be enlarged, but sadly, the opposite is what ends up happening. The person who should be part of the circle when the person goes to them is excluded, because they don't go to that person, and then all the people who shouldn't be part of the circle end up being included. 
Now, one more thing related to verse 3 before we move on that can further complicate this. Even if you can overlook an offense, even if you're not offended, there are times you should still rebuke the person because the verse says, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. It doesn't say, if your brother sins and you are offended, rebuke him. There's certain sin that should be rebuked even if you're not offended. When people sin or they remain in unrepentant sin, even if you're not offended by that sin, you still have a responsibility as their brother or sister in Christ to go to them to see repentance produced. And we'll talk more about that next week. To be perfectly clear, though, when people are in sin, we must confront them even if we are not offended if they are in unrepentant sin. Now, notice it says, if he repents, forgive him. Now, this is interesting. You are not, or we are not called to judge people's repentance. It's kind of surprising to me. It doesn't say, if he seems repentant, forgive him. Or if you're sure he's repentant, forgive him. And the reason it surprises me is because we know that there's godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow, right? Godly sorrow that produces repentance, worldly sorrow which doesn't, which produces death. And so we know that people can seem sorry, but it might not be godly sorrow, yet we're still not told to evaluate or judge people's hearts. In other words, let me say it like this. We are commanded to think the best until forced to think otherwise. We are not to be accusing and think the worst. And one time I went to someone, two times actually, I saw someone thinking the best about a situation or about a person when it was pretty evident to me that that was not accurate. And the person said, I'm going to th- I'm going to think the best. I will not insert malice until I must. And another person told me, if you're concerned about whether the person is being genuine or whether that's sincere, then ask God to show you otherwise because he can do that. So if you really doubt someone's sincerity or repentance, think the best, but ask God to convince you otherwise. But until he does that, then we must believe the person is repentant and we must forgive them. You want to know when you might start questioning the sincerity of people's repentance? When might you start to question the sincerity of someone's repentance? Look at verse 7 for the answer. If he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times, saying, I repent, you must forgive him. I'll tell you what, if someone comes to me seven times in one day apologizing for the same thing, I'm really going to be doubting the sincerity of their repentance. (laughs) If the same thing happens seven times the same day, not over the course of a month, I'm going to be doubting that person's sincerity or repentance. But what does Jesus still say? If he repents, you must forgive him. This brings us to lesson four. If he repents, forgive him an unlimited number of times. If he repents, forgive him an unlimited number of times. The parallel account in Matthew's gospel, which is probably the one we're most familiar with, reads this way. Matthew 18, 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, 
Lord, how often will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him as many as seven times? Verse 22, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. And it's hard to tell if this is 77 or 70 times seven. We're going to say that it's 70 times seven. So first you read Luke's gospel, and you get excited because you say, I only have to forgive this person seven times, but on the eighth time, out of luck. And then you go to Matthew's gospel, and Jesus says, jacks up that standard even more, but you still kind of encourage yourself because you say, okay, on the 491st time, <laughs> they're out of luck. And you're counting, you're like, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. 487, 488, we're getting close. 489, 490, they come back the 491st time and you're like, I don't have to forgive you again. You used up your 490 forgivenesses. And it's over between us. Don't ever talk to me again. (laughs) So we know that's not what Jesus meant. His point is that there's just no limit on this. And if you're wondering why Peter said this, the common rabbinical teaching of the day was that based on some verses in Amos, I just didn't want to go down a rabbit trail, but you can read those verses in Amos where it's like for three times, but on the fourth times, it's repeated throughout that, and some other, and some other it, evidences that cause the rabbis to teach that you'd only forgive people three times. So Peter comes thinking he sounds incredibly spiritual, and he says to Jesus what? Yeah, well, what about seven times, Lord? I know everyone's saying three times, but I'm so spiritual, I say seven times. And then Jesus responds with 70 times or seven times, 70 times. One commentator said, the rabbis discussed this question and recommended not more than three times. Peter's seven times seems therefore generous, but Jesus' reply does away with all limits and calculations. Now I know what you're thinking. You are thinking... This sounds incredibly difficult to be that forgiving that I would forgive someone 490 plus times in the same day for the same offense. And I have good news for you. You are not the only ones who think that that sounds incredibly difficult. The apostles thought this standard of forgiveness sounded incredibly difficult. And so look what they said to Jesus in response. Verse 5. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. I just picture this conversation like Jesus sets this standard for forgiveness and the apostles are getting crushed under and they're just like, help us. Help us be able to do this. Increase our faith to be able to forgive the way that you were saying. We thought that the rabbis three times was tough. And now you're saying an unlimited number of times. Now, if you're anything like me, forgiveness is difficult for you. It is one of my struggles. I'm ashamed to say that because I know how much the Lord has forgiven me for. But with that said, this verse is very encouraging because apparently forgiving people also sounded incredibly difficult to the apostles who requested the faith to be able to obey this command. Adam Clark said, This work of pardoning every offense of man seemed so difficult even to the disciples themselves that they saw that without an extraordinary degree of faith, they would never be able to obey. So they heard this and they felt inadequate in the face of this high standard. 
And so they said, give us more faith. Give us the faith to be able to do this. Help us be strong enough to forgive as you have commanded. Now, if you didn't know how Jesus responds, what would you expect Jesus to say, or how would you expect Jesus to respond to such a request that sounds like a pretty good one? Sure, let's do it. I'll give you more faith. I mean, that's a good thing. It's almost like James 1, 5, right? Ask for wisdom, God gives you wisdom liberally. Ask for faith, God gives you faith liberally. Here, let me pour out some more faith. Drink this. Where's your cup? Pour more faith in there. Drink that down. You got increase your faith just like you wanted. He brushed their request aside. Look at verse 6. The Lord said, If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. So interestingly, as important as faith is, notice what Jesus did not do. He did not tell them he would increase their faith, and he did not tell them how they could increase their faith. How can we attempt to increase our faith? Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. If you ever feel that your faith is lacking, you you want to remedy that by spending more time in God's word. That's how we're told that our faith is increased. But interestingly, Jesus didn't do that. He didn't say, hey, you know, some years in the future, the apostle Paul, you don't know him yet. You're going to know him. He's going to murder Christians, and he's going to become an apostle. He's going to take Judas's place. Long story. We won't deal with it yet. But this guy's going to come along, write Romans 10, and then in chapter 10, verse 17, well, after they give epistles, chapters, and num- verse numbers, then he's going to say that faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Nothing like that. He didn't, he didn't say, go read the Old Testament scriptures. When you read the Old Testament scriptures, your faith will be increased. Instead, he provided one of his most well-known hyperboles or exaggerations to make a point that if the disciples had enough faith, they could tell a tree to be uprooted and planted in the sea. I take this to mean that even a little faith can do something great, or even a little faith can do something supernatural, which is what it is to be able to forgive people as Christ forgave people. That's not an earthly physical thing. That is a supernatural spiritual thing. The similar account in Matthew's gospel, which might be the more familiar one, and the one I want to share so that we can have a fuller picture of this, because when we put these two accounts together, it gives us a good understanding of what Jesus did and didn't mean by these statements. So here's the context for the account in Matthew's gospel. A man's son is demon-possessed, and the man brings his son to the disciples to have them exercise this demon. They're unable to do so, so then the man brings his son to Jesus. Jesus exercises the demon, which the disciples witnessed. They say to Jesus, why were we unable to do what you were able to do? And then in Matthew 17, 20, Jesus said, because of your little faith, For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will be able to say to this mountain, so here it's a mountain versus a tree, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. Now we know that, so sometimes even when we know what something doesn't mean, we have trouble understanding what it does mean. So we do know that this doesn't mean that if you have enough faith, you can tell a tree or a mountain to move. We've never seen that happen. 
and we've never heard any teachers tell us that if you have enough faith you can do these things but it still can leave us kind of scratching our heads wondering what Jesus did mean by this then and if we put these accounts together we can see that it means that if we have the faith we will be able to do the things the Lord wants us to do so if you've ever been confused by either of these accounts and you can look at them side by side and they're both making the same point that if we have faith even a little faith we will have what we need to be able to obey the Lord or do what he wants us to do in Matthew's gospel Jesus told the disciples if they had even a little faith they'd be able to cast out demons and in Luke's gospel Jesus told the disciples if they had enough faith even a little faith they'd be able to forgive people an unlimited number of times here's two commentators thoughts on this Hendrickson said no task assigned by the Lord including even causing a mulberry tree to be uprooted and planted in the sea would be a possible would be impossible for us to accomplish as long as we remain in trustful contact with God Stein said Jesus's words are perhaps best translated if you have faith you can and it means if you have faith you can do those things that the Lord wants us to do so it's not the amount of faith that matters but the fact that God can powerfully work through that faith we have to help us obey and so it's not an it's not an issue of the size of the faith it's the quality of the faith or what it's in you know if you think about ice skating it's better to have a little faith and be on on thick ice than to have a, a lot of faith and to be on thin ice and this brings us to lesson four or lesson five forgiveness is a matter of faith versus effort forgiveness is a matter of faith versus effort here's two more commentators Poole said no duty required of man more grates upon the flesh than this of forgiving injuries noting that people find it harder to put into practice so where there is no root of faith the fruit of forgiveness will not be found where there is no root of faith there will be no fruit of forgiveness is what Poole said the pulpit commentary explained it this way Jesus says if you have any real faith at all you will be able to win the victory over yourselves necessary for a perpetual loving forgiveness of others now this is fascinating to me and very encouraging this past week in my studying hopefully it is encouraging to you as well that forgiveness is more a matter of faith than effort because we tend to talk about forgiveness this way it's really hard to do it is incredibly difficult so when we talk about forgiveness we tend to think almost exclusively about human effort right well right here Jesus says it is not about human effort it is about faith many of us have probably tried to forgive and have been unable to do so but actually maybe that looks to why we failed we were trying in our own effort it was a work of the flesh versus being a work of the Spirit I read that the roots of a mulberry tree are and so here here's all I'm saying if, if just to make that practical if you're listening you're saying okay pastor gotta hear what you're saying but what does that look like it looks like this you want to forgive someone and you 
It's not an issue of you sitting down going like this. I will try hard enough to forgive this person. Uh, uh, Forgiven. Okay, it's going to be a spiritual issue between you and the Lord where we must pray and say, Lord, I can't in my own effort forgive this person. I sense bitterness setting in. I have been angry for years. I see the person and I am upset and I cannot forgive them in my human effort. And so I need, this is a faith issue, Lord. I need you to enable me by the work of the gospel in my heart to be able to forgive this person. That's how to be successful in the area, not by trying harder. It wouldn't be a situation where you come to my, come to my office for counseling and say, I can't forgive this person. I say, you're just not trying hard enough. You just simply are not trying hard enough. It's a, it's a devotional issue between you or a spiritual issue between you and the Lord. I read the roots of mulberry trees are extraordinarily strong. The tree could remain rooted for 600 years. That's incredible. Now let's think about the implications for forgiveness and for bitterness. Maybe we have bitterness toward people or unforgiveness, and the roots are extraordinarily strong. Maybe if we could live for 600 years... <laughs> You know, that bitterness or unforgiveness would remain all that time. Jesus' point is that with faith, there can be forgiveness and those roots can be ripped out. Now, as we head toward our conclusion, I want to ask you a question. And sometimes when I ask you questions, there's multiple answers. So I invite you to share things out loud and sometimes even share things that I didn't think of, which is, which is a uh, blessing for me to learn even when I'm up here preaching. But this time I asked a question, and I'm looking for one right answer. There's primarily one right answer for this question, okay? Why do we forgive others? Who, who's, who's brave enough and wants to take a stab? Jack? That's it. That's the answer. That's the answer. Thanks for making that so short there, Jack. We didn't even get any <laughs> wrong answers shared. Lesson six, if he repents, forgive him because God forgave you. If he repents, forgive him because God forgave you. So let's talk about why we don't forgive. We don't forgive because people deserve it, and they don't. So you can't forgive because people deserve it because they don't deserve to be forgiven. We don't forgive people because they've forgiven us. But that could be true. Perhaps they've forgiven us. Perhaps we could even think about people forgiving us for things we've done wrong, and that could make it easier to forgive others. But that's not why primarily we forgive people. We don't forgive people because of the wonderful things they've done for us. And then we think about those wonderful things. We're reminded of how great they've been to us, and so then we are moved to forgive them. And obviously that wouldn't even work sometimes because many times you can't even think of wonderful things people have done for you. We don't forgive because it makes such a great witness even though it does make a great witness. I mean, what looks more like Christ than forgiveness? Christ's name, it almost is associated to me with forgiveness. I think of Christ and I think of forgiveness. What makes a greater testimony of Christ than forgiving someone? Few things look more like Christ than forgiving. It's a way for people to see Christ through us. One time early in, early in Katie's Christian life, she shared how she had, had wronged this friend of hers and she had to go to the friend and apologize and ask for forgiveness and she had dreaded it and the friend had forgiven her so graciously and so kindly that katie sobbed and she said that it was one time she had seen christ so clearly through someone 
what looks more like christ than for someone to be charitable or gracious and merciful in the face of an offense or in the face of sin but even that's not why we forgive people we don't forgive people because it helps us this is very common in fact this past week the speech and debate tournament there's some downtime i'm standing with some and one of the men's here curtis is he's one of the guys on this team with me and i asked i asked curtis and i asked this other guy hey what do we, what do you guys think about forgiveness tell me about forgiveness and when you think you forgive people and this guy says there is some truth to this but he said you want to make sure you forgive people for you because if you don't forgive people you're hurting yourself and there's truth to that have you heard the the saying that not forgiving people is swallowing poison and hoping they die or get hurt but even forgiving others for our benefit and there is benefit for us we are harmed by unforgiveness is not the primary reason that we forgive i would say that if you were helping someone forgive you can mention some of these reasons they could encourage the person but you've got to go beyond that so if you're ever counseling someone or counseling yourself about forgiveness and you list all of these great reasons but you don't list this reason you have not gone far enough the primary reason to forgive others is because christ has forgiven us for so much ephesians 4 32 be kind to one another tender-hearted forgiving one another as god in christ forgave you colossians 3 13 bearing with one another and if one has a complaint against another forgiving each other as the lord has forgiven you so you also must forgive and so when we're parenting and i've failed in this many times telling my children to forgive each other but failing to point out that they should forgive each other because of what christ has forgiven them for jesus taught an entire parable making this point i suspect it's familiar to most of you so i'm going to go through it quickly there's a man that owes this huge debt that he can't repay he is about to be sold his wife and his children are going to be sold as well Matthew 18 26 so the servant he falls down on his knees and he implores his master and he says have patience with me and I will pay you everything and I take this to be a picture of the man's repentance because this is how we're forgiven by God by repenting out of pity for him the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt so the master forgave him for everything when he repented like god forgives us for everything when we repent matthew 18 28 18 28 when that servant went out he found one of his servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him he began to choke him saying pay what you owe now his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him said the exact same words that this man had just said to his master have patience with me and i will pay you and i noticed something interesting in this account that i'd never noticed before the servant who grabbed the other man by the neck is also a master because he had a servant and he had his servant do exactly to him what he had just done to his master with the exact same words and because he repented and his master forgave him so should he forgive his servant when that servant repents instead matthew 18 30 he refuses he went he put the man in prison until he should pay the debt when his fellow servants saw what had taken place they're greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place 
Then his master summoned him and said to him, and then listen to this, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And something else that stuck out to me in this account is when did the man become a wicked servant? Did you ever notice when the master called him a wicked servant? He didn't call him a wicked servant earlier regarding the huge sin debt he had. And when you've got a sin debt of that size, you would almost expect that that makes you a wicked servant. But when the man came before the master with this huge sin debt that he couldn't repay given multiple lifetimes, the master never said that he was wicked. When did the master say he was wicked? When he would not extend the same forgiveness to someone else that had been extended to him. So Spurgeon put it this way. We incur greater wrath by refusing to forgive than by all the rest of our indebtedness. Let me say that one more time. We incur greater wrath by refusing to forgive than by all the rest of our indebtedness. And I believe that's what's behind the world's most common prayer, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sinned against us. More than likely, that's what Jesus had in mind there, that the attitude that will not forgive others, it's not as though we are forgiven for forgiving. It's not a works-based gospel. It's not tit for tat. It's not where God says, if you forgive, I'll forgive you. Instead, it just seems to me that the heart that is so unforgiving that we could be forgiven for so much, yet withhold that forgiveness from others would be evidence of an unregenerate heart. There would only be an unbeliever who could act that way towards someone who's repentant. And so the primary reason to forgive repentant people who sin against us is because God has forgiven us so much when we have repented. Christians, we should be the most forgiving people because we are the most forgiven people. We should be the most forgiving people because we are the most forgiven people. If you have any questions about anything I've shared this morning or I could pray for you in any way, perhaps if you're struggling to forgive, I can pray for you. You could pray for me. It'll be a privilege to speak to you after service. I'll be up front. Father, I thank you for these challenging verses. They've worked on my heart throughout this week as I've studied them and then thought about them. And it continues next week and perhaps a a week after that with forgiveness. And so I thank you for this chapter we have found ourselves in as a church to deal with forgiveness, such a challenging topic. Lord, uh, you want us to be forgiving people. We should be the most forgiving people because of all we've been forgiven for. Greatly challenges me, Lord. Help us to be those people if for no other reason than that, that others could see Christ through us. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen.